This episode continues my pilot coverage for this week of October 2nd through 8th. Every day, a different aspect of the pilot. Today, I'm discussing the uh, subplots of the uh, pilot episode that don't necessarily have to do with Laura Palmer. I focused on those ones yesterday. One note as well on the credit sequence, since, you know, going forward, it's going to be more or less the same week to week. This is actually a longer version of the credits we'll eventually get. So I might as well discuss this here. It begins with a bird, a shot of a bird, which is a nice segue from Blue Velvet, which was Lynch's previous uh, major work at this point. That had ended with this image of a robin with a bug in its mouth. And kind of, you know, they talk about in the story of the film. So suddenly to begin now with this other bird on a branch is kind of a nice little transition from Blue Velvet into Twin Peaks over the course of four years, basically. There's also an interesting motif playing out through the credits of kind of industry versus nature. We see the mill, we see the workings of the saws, and Twin Peaks, the title, even though it's about you know, it refers to these mountains, these majestic natural monuments. It actually appears on screen over the saws whirring and turning. And there's an interesting uh, little paradox, a little contradiction there to savor. And interestingly, uh, that will change going forward. The credit sequence, the Twin Peaks title actually will appear over the mountains week to week. Um, because of the shorter sequence, they just push everything together. And that makes a certain sense. And there's something really evocative and stirring about that image. But I love that. I love to just savor that strangeness of the juxtaposition between the title Twin Peaks and these this this human tools uh, going to work, you know. And there's something almost kind of violent about it, about the attack on the trees. I'm not the first one to point that out, you know. But that's something people have noticed about about this sequence and kind of how it you're uh, just un, in an unsettling way kind of sets up the story. It's also, of course, a juxtaposition between industry and nature, which is a very Lynchian thing. And they even refer to that in the uh, pilot and a dialogue, of course, that was actually probably written by Frost. Here in Twin Peaks, health and industry go hand in hand, which, of course, is not really true. We've got various subplots that so far are not explicitly connected to Laura, although they easily could become that way. That first scene where we're meeting the Packard family, Pete, uh, or the Packard slash Martell family, Pete Martell, his wife, Catherine, and uh, Josie, who is the sort of the, the sister-in-law to them through her marriage to the dead owner of the mill. And that's all kind of exposed later uh, in, the, in the episode, in the town meeting scene. But in this first scene, we're getting a sense uh, that uh, Pete and Catherine's marriage is pretty frosty. They don't seem to be uh, getting along that well in that moment. And Josie's place in the home is um, sort of ambiguous. You know, she married into this family and now her husband's dead, but she's still there because she owns the mill. So we have a weird dynamic going on with these three characters, sort of an odd little family unit there. Um, we don't see that if they have any kids in this episode. If they do, they're not in the home, uh, at least at this time. So you know, it's like this three-person family that is, uh, it has a weird relationship to each other. Uh, then we see the when the Josie shuts down the mill for the day, Catherine's furious at her. We see how much they really don't like each other and how Pete's kind of caught in the middle of it. Uh, one other thing to note in this scene, we see a 1989 fiscal calendar on the wall. This is one of the few times they really reference 
what year it is. Because I think Cooper says February 24th. I don't think he says 1989. So a lot of people thought it took place in 1990. And there's some continuity errors later in the show where they kind of reference 1990 in a background detail. But really, for the most part, they stick with the 1989 as the the year that it is. Then we get the town meeting scene. And this is where we get the exposition about the Packard family and their dynamic. Uh, Truman tells Cooper that Josie married Andrew Packard. He died in a boating accident. And now Ben Horn is somehow after Josie's money in some way. And, uh, you know, Catherine is, uh, calls her the original ice queen. So not much, not much love lost there. And, uh, you know, we're getting that they're the ones, them and the Horn, uh, Ben Horn are the ones who are kind of the focus of Truman's layout of what the town is like to, to Cooper. They're the central figures there. For the Briggs family life, we get a little snapshot of Major and Mrs. Briggs at home. They seem fairly loving in a kind of a stiff way, him sitting there in his uniform and her, you know, massaging his shoulders or whatever. And they have a weird disconnect from their rebellious son. And, uh, you know, we get a sense of that when they're later leaving the police station. And, uh, and and um, you know, uh, it tries to, says, Bobby, if you need any... Uh, a comforting, I don't need any damn sympathetic anything. You know, he storms away. So a little bit of a dysfunctional family there. The Horn family life uh, also seems to be somewhat dysfunctional in that Audrey is an extremely mischievous uh, young woman. She, we, see, we are introduced to her leaving the house, so we're seeing she's kind of this rich girl taken to school in a limo. Seems very self-possessed. And uh, later she's sitting at the dad's desk asking, acting kind of like a little kid, like, She's a senior in high school. She's in Laura's and Donna's and James's class and Bobby's class. You know, she's the same age as all of them, but she's very childish in what she does, which is, uh, first of all, she sticks a pencil into a cup of coffee and spills it all over the concierge's desk, makes a mess, and then she marches right into the room she's not supposed to go in where the Norwegians are signing the contract, and they've just been told, do not let them know that somebody died. And she goes right out there and says, oh, my friend Laura... She's been murdered. She was found face down naked on a beach. And the Norwegians are horrified. They storm out of town. And, uh, you know, the concierge is screaming, the Norwegians are leaving. The Norwegians are leaving. And Audrey's just laughing at it. She's having a ball. So this tells us right away that she is not her father's, uh, you know, she is uh, not honoring her father, let's say. And later we see uh, her relationship to her mother just seems kind of frosty. They're sitting there drinking tea and she's upset about Johnny and Audrey's just sitting there looking morose for once. The one time in the episode that she seems like not having a ball, basically, even when she finds out Laura's dead, she seems more like intrigued, has an odd reaction there. So what's going on with her? Uh, We really don't know much at this point about her relationship to Laura. She seems pretty flippant about the death and she has kind of a wicked streak. Uh, We're not sure yet how that's going to manifest itself or what it has to do with Laura and uh, her death. Next subplot is the Ghostwood, um, the Ghostwood Forest, uh, or Ghostwood Development, rather, Packard Sawmill plot. We know right away that these two areas are connected because Ben tells Leland that the Norwegians are going to sign the contract, but they haven't yet actually purchased the uh, Packard Sawmill. Ben implies that he's got some information that it's going to go belly up soon. Next, we have Ben really given that hard pitch to the Norwegians to get them over the hump and just sign the contracts already, which they're getting pretty much ready to do. And, uh, you know, the, he's talking about the clean air and the wonderful, 
natural environment, and he's right away commodifying the show's appeal in a very self-conscious way. That feels like a very Mark Frost thing to do, it's sort of a statement on the like late 80s, uh, you know, treatment even of natural resources as something to be bought and sold and parceled out. The next scene involving the Ghostwood deal is when, uh, well, actually involving the Packard sawmill, which, as this episode shows, the two are related. Josie has Pete shut the mill down, and Catherine is furious, and she says to Josie, you know, this mill, you don't know anything about running it. We're already losing business, and you want to close it down for a day and lose the, you know, even more so. She's really upset about this from a business standpoint, and uh, and Josie wants to do it, uh, sort of has this, you know, heartful gesture uh, that she wants to make, but probably not the soundest business decision. So this sort of adds credence to this idea that maybe the mill's going down. And we wonder, you know, we later we see Ben talking to Josie, and, uh, uh, and uh, Truman says, you know, he's after after her money or whatever. And so he wants to get that Packard. He wants to get that sawmill. What does he know about the way Josie's running it? And the way that, like, you know, how Catherine feels about it and all of that stuff. Later, of course, we return to the hotel. And uh, we have, as I said, Audrey spills the coffee, tells the Norwegians about Lara. So the significance of this for the Norwegians is now they know a dark side of this town. They know that somebody's dead. And there's a great line where one of the Norwegians is is told, you know, Ben says to him, you're throwing away the op- the investment opportunity of a lifetime. And the Norwegian says, better that than to throw a lifetime away. So they're scared about suddenly this this crime problem here in this supposedly pristine little town. It's a very farcical moment over the top. It feels like something out of the Lynch Frost screenplay, a uh, one saliva bubble, and almost feels a little out of step with a more somber tone. And even, you know, when there's humor, this sort of more offbeat, eccentric humor of the rest of it, this is sort of a broad... Uh, parodic kind of moment if that's a word (laughs) parody kind of moment and uh, later at the town meeting as i said we get that information about uh, from truman telling cooper about their you know the 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 sawmill and that josie's the owner and all of that and finally at the end of the episode when truman and josie embrace outside Catherine calls ben on the phone says they're out front and they are sort of conspiring together. And we're like, oh, okay, this is a new dimension here. What's going on now? Earlier, we saw Catherine upset about how Josie was running the sawmill. So what's her relationship to Ben then in this scenario? Because Ben wants the sawmill to go out of business so that he can buy it. So here we're getting probably um, the foremost like plot of these subplots. The other ones are sort of more situations or portraits of like a family or something. Uh, but this one here, we're getting a real like setup of something's going on in this town to the point where, you know, it's hard for anything to compete with the Laura Palmer mystery in this episode. But if there's any other sort of plot mechanism here, it's kind of this. Next up, we've got Shelly, Bobby, and Leo. There's some sort of triangle going on there. Uh, Bobby is at the diner having his morning coffee. Kind of teased by Norma, the the diner's owner, who Shelly thinks might have a thing for him. And uh, Shelly and Bobby leave, and then they kiss in the car. They're going off. They're drinking, having a flask, and enjoying themselves, and uh, thinking maybe they're going to go back to the house and fool around. And then, boom, she sees Leo's truck. She's scared. She runs out. She goes into the house. So, you know, this, this, this guy, he is her, uh, you know, her her lover basically her official 
boyfriend or husband. And uh, Bobby is this side thing. And there's a sense of, oh, my God, he can't stay together. He's not just going to be like he's going to be furious. And later we kind of see why, because there's a follow up scene. Then there's a follow up with Shelly and Leo at home. And he's yelling at her and threatening her because he's found some cigarettes that aren't hers, he thinks, in the house. So he's very suspicious and jealous. He seems to be potentially violent. This does not seem like a good relationship. So here we have some sort of element of a uh, of a love triangle and you know affair that if it's exposed is going to do a lot more than upset people emotionally. It could result in something pretty catastrophic for uh, for Shelley and probably Bobby as well. Uh, one thing to notice about this scene too is the voice on the TV is actually Mark Frost. He's playing the voice of the reporter that's reporting. And uh, in the script, there was supposed to be a lot more of a media presence in the town. And that basically was written out and it's a much more quieter. Like there isn't a sense that this is like a big news story that's being covered by all these reporters. Uh, there's There's no... It's just a much quieter thing, and I think that works much more to the benefit of the, the vibe of this episode than it would have to have like a media frenzy there. Another storyline is James and Donna. They initially are just friends connected through Lara, but of course we see more is developing there, and we see that it's uh, when they first kiss, we're not sure, wait, is this something that's been going on? Wait, did they do something to Lara? And it's like this, this you know, so they could come out of the shadows or whatever. But no, this is their first moment realizing their attraction they feel to each other. Uh, this gets going when uh, James gives Ed a note to give to Donna. Uh, early in the episode, he drives by on his motorcycle and Ed kind of tries to comfort him. He says, I can't do it, Ed, and gives him the note. So right away, they want to have some sort of talk. They've got some sort of connection and it's Laura that's bringing them together, but there's obviously something else as well. Later, Ed gives Donna the note. She drops by, and uh, he's wants wants to let her know that she's uh, that James is looking for. Her. Uh, M- Mike pulls up in this moment. He yells at her, and you know, there's a, we'll deal with that little subplot later. Donna decides to go out and uh, and see James. Following that note, she tells her sister Harriet to cover for her. Harriet does not do a very good job of this. Basically just points to the window when Doc Hayward comes in and confronts her. It's like, she went out that way. And uh, Donna sneaks out the window. She goes to meet James. And at this point, it's still ostensibly about Laura. You know, there's not like a, a romance kindling between them, we don't think. Uh, they don't think anyways. So the, uh, Donna goes to the roadhouse. She waits there, meets Joey Paulson, another biker who's going to take her to James. And Bobby and Mike come in and confront them and start yelling at them. And Joey sneaks her out as the bikers engage Bobby and Mike in a fight. Rides her off into the woods, takes her. She meets James in the woods. And then this story, after all of this setup, the subplot really gets going when they kiss in the middle of James crying. And they realize they're attracted. And James starts to apologize, and then he immediately walks it back. I, I take it back. I'm not sorry. So there's something really blossoming between them there in this moment of, of grief and sorrow they're finding a connection to coming together. Uh, the next storyline, I guess, we can go right into Nadine's Drape Runners. That's not much of a subplot at this point, but it is in two different scenes, so it's worth mentioning that uh, this the one-eyed uh, wife of Ed is constantly yelling at him from her house and talking about those Drape Runners. You know, you got to come set up the Drape Runners. Hurry up. And then at the end of the episode, we see her 
violently pulling them back and forth on the rack. Like, what is she up? What is this obsession with drape runners? It's like they gave her a bit of business to do. They liked the character and the performance and they just ran with it. So uh, basically the only significance of this subplot is uh, so far is just that she's this kind of demented wife. And then of course, uh, when Ed and Norma are meeting at the roadhouse, it mentions Nadine and her obsession with drape runners, and they both kind of have a laugh about it. So she's known as this eccentric figure, and this is an odd thing she's interested in. Next up is the Teresa Banks case. I'm just, by the way, talking about these subplots in the order they come up in the episode. That's how they're organized. When Cooper finds the letter under Laura's fingernail, he gets really excited. He talks to Diane on his tape recorder. Of course, side note, we don't know who Diane is, but uh, she seems to be some sort of... Uh, assistant or something that he's sending all of his info to uh, he mentions this fingernail he's he's this connects it to another case and then we find out at the town meeting what that case is Teresa banks young woman no real connections uh you know was just a drifter and they found her dead in this other area of washington and uh, now she's connected and right away she's set up here as kind of an opposite of laura this remote figure, you know, geographically on the other side of the state, dead ends to the mystery, whereas there's all these clues going in different directions here, and uh, a drifter, so sort of impoverished, you know, whereas Lara was from the secure middle-class family. So there's like a shadow self thing going on here, which is interesting. The Mike and Donna story subplot in this episode uh, mostly just has to do with Mike being an ass to Donna, who's his girlfriend. Uh, he shows up when Ed is giving Donna the note and yells at her, uh, you know, meet me, meet, you know, come to the sheriff's station. They want to see you there and even gets into a fight with Ed about it. It's just uh, Ed and Donna even have a line later like, do you know how to pick them, huh? And so uh, at the sheriff's station, Mike is waiting for Bobby and uh, that's when he finds out about possibly James having something with Donna, so his jealousy is triggered. Mike and Bobby go to the Hayward house just after Donna left, and they've been drinking and driving, which Doc immediately recognizes, and they have this hilarious excuse. Oh, no, well, I haven't been driving. Bobby's been doing most of the driving. Meanwhile, Bobby's standing on the hood of the car with, like, a can of beer in one hand, like, surfing on the on the hood. So, you know, they don't they make a pretty bad impression right away on her dad. It's clear that he's not thrilled with his daughter's boyfriend. But, hey, they're in high school. They have these things. We just kind of sit back and let them do it, I guess, is the, is the idea. And they'll figure out the hard way that this is not the one for her. And uh, when he's told that Donna snuck out, uh, Doc, Doc Hayward's like, oh, uh, you know, well, maybe we can find her. And he goes, oh, we'll find her. It's like he's even rude to the dad of his girlfriend. Such a dick. Bobby has a hilarious line in this scene where he says, don't take any oink oink off that pretty pig, which makes absolutely no sense. It's just a censored line. They were supposed to say, you know, don't take any shit from that bitch or something like that. And uh, they realized, wait, this is an ABC show. I'm not filming Blue Velvet. I, I can't use that line. So Lynch came up with something goofier that's much more memorable in a way. Uh, as the Mike and Bobby go to the roadhouse, Cooper and Truman see them entering. Uh, they're watching them from outside because they're staking out the place waiting for Donna. And uh, Cooper and Truman have a funny exchange. It doesn't have to do with the Mike and Bobby stuff, but might as well mention it here. He talks, says, you know, you know why I'm whittling? He says, no, why? Well, that's what you do in a town where... Uh, Yellow light still means slow down, and a red light means stop, which I totally massacred that line, but that's the uh, that's the gist of it. Inside the roadhouse, we hear uh, the song The Nightingale playing by Julie Cruz. Uh, these are songs that Lynch, David Lynch wrote and produced, 
and uh, for an album a year or two earlier. And it's very odd to hear it in this moment. It's like kind of a strange fit with this biker gang that's all hanging out there. But I guess they're, you know, Lynch and Frost like to talk about how they're kind of the beatniks. The bikers are the beatniks in Twin Peaks. So Mike and Bobby enter into this milieu and just start thrashing right away. They're getting into a fight. Mike's yelling at Donna saying, you're just like Laura. You're just like her. Getting all upset with her. And, uh, you know, this relationship doesn't seem headed anywhere good. So she gets out and, uh, you know, that that's fine for her. Mike and Bobby get into a fight. They hit Ed. They get beat up. And finally, they get arrested, taken into the the local jail. And that's where they see James at the episode's end and start barking at him, I guess, to intimidate him. The Ed and Norma storyline also unfolds in the roadhouse. Uh, first, we see Ed getting a call at the gas station from Norma saying... She's upset. She'd like to see him tonight. And then we see them at the roadhouse and they're talking about their situation and basically looks like they're getting ready to leave their spouses. So we've seen Ed's wife and uh, we'll find out in a moment about uh, Norma's as well, but they're getting ready to move on with their lives. As, as Norma says, it's Tammy Wynette time, darling. So this little subplot promises uh, something for the older, more soap style, probably predominantly female viewers. Uh, you know, a couple uh, older lovers who are separated but yearning for each other. And, of course, many of these viewers will remember um, the the actress who's playing uh, Norma, Peggy Lipton, from The Mod Squad 20 years earlier. So there's that connection, too. Like, this just seems, like, aimed right at that demographic, uh, which a lot of other parts of Twin Peaks aren't really dealing with. They're dealing with, with the cop show stuff. They're dealing with the young teen lover stuff. So Twin Peaks is really going for all those different audiences here. The Hank in prison subplot is introduced here in the sense that Norma's husband is in prison. Hank is in prison for manslaughter, and it looks like he's up for parole. So they're going to have to confront this situation pretty soon. And this, along with, I guess, sort of the Ghostwood story, is uh, the Ghostwood development story, Packard Sawmill. This is kind of something that is actually... We're getting a, a actual plot situation. So the difference between this and, say, like, Shelly, Bobby, and Leo is we're getting some kind of setup there, but there's not, like, a A, then B, then C thing. We just know they're lovers. They're not supposed to be. Her husband or boyfriend is suspicious, and, that's, and there's a violent threat there, and that's it. There's no, like, where does this go next? Whereas in this, they're actually setting up, like, where this story can go next. Okay, there's this husband. She's going to have to tell pretty soon that uh, she's breaking up with her with with him and and you know gonna go with an old lover so we see like a a course of action here this hank thing is probably the most separate for laura of of anything yet so far um the connection would have to be from within prison because he's been there for uh you know for for manslaughter so he you know unless he escaped and snuck back in he didn't kill laura palmer but Maybe he's connected somehow. But so far, it just seems like very much off to the side uh, in a way that we would be hard to connect with Laura so far. Something else I already mentioned in the Laura stories, so I almost didn't include it here. I'm actually coming back to record this because I thought I should, uh, is Bobby killing a guy. So as I said, I already mentioned this in relation to Laura, but it really is its own thing, too, if you think about it. I mean... Bobby has some kind of killing in his past, at least if we believe this story, and that's a whole subplot into itself, finding out 
what Bobby was involved with. It sounds almost more like Lara's the conduit to direct us into that story, maybe. So we'll see where that goes. But James, of course, is stuck in a, in a well, across the cell from uh, the supposed killer at the episode's end. So a bit more ominous from him since he's one of the few people who knows this uh, possibility of, of Bobby's past. So uh, we can look at that in light of his relationship to Laura, see how it makes him a suspect. But again, like, let's think about this too in terms of its own storyline, because that's a pretty significant character detail. I want to be exact about the language actually that James uses. I think people often talk about this line as being, you know, when they first see the pilot and they're like, wow, Bobby killed somebody. They say that James said uh, that Laura told him Bobby killed a guy. But actually what Laura says is she taught or James says she talked about a guy getting killed. And then she said that Bobby told her that he killed this guy. So we're hearing third hand information here, apparently, according to James, that Laura supposedly did not see this, whatever this killing was, but somebody died and Bobby said he did it. So there's a little bit of an out here too, if uh, 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 not just to whether gee, did was Laura telling the truth, but even did Laura was Bobby telling the truth about himself and why would he tell somebody? So there's all kinds of layers to this. And uh, finally, we also get the Josie and Truman storyline where uh, in the town meeting, we get the first hint of it where Cooper is uh, asking who the people are and Truman says, Josie, she's, you know, the most beautiful woman in town. So right away we see, he's okay, something's going on here. And then that night, he gets a call to uh, go out to the Packard house. And, of course, it's just to see Josie, and they embrace outside. And it's like a nice little last secret surprise for Twin Peaks. Like, oh, even the sheriff has secrets, you know. But it seems like, so far, a pleasant one. And uh, they cuddle, and they're looking out at the spot where Laura died at the end of the day. So it's a nice button to put, a nice little bookend to put on the story that opened with them out on the shore uh, finding the body. Then there's some standalone scenes, uh, mostly just like kind of standalone shots, really. We get the traffic lights uh, twice, see them as transitional moments. This was something that actually Mark Frost thought would be a good punctuation point, apparently. Just this eerie image of the of the uh, traffic light kind of hanging there in the breeze at night. And uh, Lynch makes great use of it. It feels like a very Lynchian image, even though supposedly Frost came up with it. Another standalone scene we get that I find hard to tie into anything else except indirectly is uh, Cooper and Truman sitting down for donuts at the sheriff's station. And uh, Cooper asks for a place to stay, and Truman suggests the Great Northern. And it's kind of a nice little, another sort of, after this intense episode, we're getting these sort of fun light moments. And this is one of them. Uh, setting up this motif of like the sheriff's station as this cozy place with a spread of donuts and the great northern a place where he can go and you know maybe watch a game now and then but basically just sleep because he's going to be working all the time uh these are kind of the first relaxed indications little winks at us that hey you know this is going to be an ongoing tv show it's not all intense uh tv movie of the night stuff going on here there's going to be some moments to savor as well as uh, mysteries to follow. And finally, the last scene is a standalone scene uh, for now. Uh, it's connected to Lara's necklace, but we're not sure what actual aspect of her subplot it's connected to because we don't know who's taking this necklace from the woods. Sarah's lying on the uh, bed, and, or the couch rather, and jumping up 
in in horror. The necklace part of it is uh, going to be something that we're it's it's a nice little stinger for the end of the episode. We're going to have to wait and see what it means. For the uncanny in this episode, uh, there's nothing like overtly, I guess, uh, otherworldly, so to speak. There's a general ethereal mood that's evoked by the scenery and the music and some props like the black dogs. The crime scene, as I said, seems to have a ritualistic aspect to it. Uh, But the only overtly inexplicable event that happens is the intercutting of Sarah with the hand digging up the necklace. We don't really know what's going on there, but there's an obvious implication in the cutting that she is seeing this thing, this, this hand picking up this necklace. That's an interesting way to end the episode. There's also one other thing. I'll let you see it for yourself and see what you make of it. If you're a first-time viewer, uh, take a look in the mirror behind Sarah when she sits up. There's a fun little bonus thing happening in that mirror. That's it for this episode. Tomorrow we'll be back with media coverage of the show from the time I have a lot of excerpts from press coverage in 1990, Really interesting stuff to share there, and then also talking about the fans and how they've responded at various points, looking back on their first memories at the time, uh, in some cases, and uh, my own thoughts on this episode after watching it uh, many times. That will be tomorrow's episode. See you then. 